Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Dr. Ken Collins, professor of historical theology and Wesley studies, joined the podcast today. He came to the seminary faculty in 1995 and received the Professor of the Year Award for Excellence in Teaching and Learning in 2008. Prior to coming to the seminary, he was recognized for exemplary teaching in a national competition among United Methodist Schools in 1994. Dr. Collins is a past president of the Wesleyan Theological Society and a member of the editorial board of the Asbury Journal. Beyond this, he currently serves on the faculty of the Baltic Methodist Theological Seminary in Estonia. He has lectured and taught throughout the world and is known for his engaging critical thinking style. He currently serves as the director of the Wesleyan Studies Summer Seminar, which fosters research, scholarship, and publication globally in the broad field of Wesleyan Studies. This program began in June 2011 and continues to this day. Dr. Collins is a member of several professional organizations and has published a host of books and scores of articles exploring topics ranging from Wesleyan theology to Christian spirituality. In today's conversation, we talk about Dr. Collins' most recent book, Jesus the Stranger, that takes readers through a journey that allows us to see the love, beauty, goodness, and yes, suffering of Jesus in a new way. Let's listen. Dr. Collins, it's delightful to be here with you today to talk about Jesus the Stranger. It's delightful to meet you in person. I've known of you for quite some time, but it's delightful to officially meet you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Heidi, for inviting me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, well, I want to talk about your new book, Jesus the Stranger, The Man from Galilee and Light of the World. But before we get to that, I just want to let folks get to know you a little bit as a faculty member at Asbury. So how did you experience your call to ministry? And did you know what it was going to, like, that professorship was in your future when you experienced that calling? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. When I was a middler here at Asbury uh-huh. Theological Seminary, I had a definite calling to be a teacher, a professor. I originally had come to Asbury thinking I would be a pastor, but once I got involved with the academic dimension of Asbury Seminary, Uh, I saw a whole new world, and by the time I was a middler, I never looked back. Uh Uh, And I geared my whole curriculum to to that end. And so I did a THM after Asbury uh, at Princeton Seminary, and then I did a PhD at Drew University. Wow. I think it's interesting that you came for one thing, and then because of your interest like the Lord led you a different direction. But getting That's you right. here and to the next step was the important part. You just didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. That's right. That's right. Yeah. How did, Since your calling has morphed and changed, I think as all of ours do, we just don't know that in the beginning, how do you define calling? Calling is something very personal. 
Um, it is our sense of God in our own life and where God is leading us and what we are to do, how we can serve God and the gospel through the gifts and graces that God has given us. And so I think it's a, a deliberative process. It's something we think about, pray about over time. Uh, and I think it has to do with discernment. Um, uh, friends and and people in the church can be very helpful in terms of this because sometimes they can see things that we might miss. I know early on in my journey, uh, a, a small Bible study that I was a part of uh, recognized that uh, I exercise a prophetic office because mm -hmm. I'm a truth speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has stayed with me uh, for the entirety of my journey. That's really cool. What does what does that look like? The prophetic office and being a truth speaker. Uh, you are richly acquainted with suffering and pain, uh, uh, because lots of people don't want to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to accept that. You have to learn to um, make friends with that, so to speak. That is your calling. Um, but people who exercise a prophetic office, they cannot do otherwise. It's in their bones. It's in their mm -hmm. blood. Mm -hmm. And when they're especially suffering and ostracized, and Jesus, by the way, exercised a rich prophetic office, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is why he was ostracized, ridiculed, slandered, criticized etc etc mm -hmm. um, th there's always great comfort always great comfort in the Holy Spirit knowing you know you know that you are in God's will you're doing God's will uh, despite the negativity that you're experiencing mm -hmm. so it's a tough place to be and it can be lonely it can yeah. be lonely at times yeah yeah definitely I, I would imagine that now you are the professor of historical theology and Wesley studies at the seminary. But as you mentioned, you first came to Asbury Seminary as a student. So could you tell us a little bit about your journey to Asbury Seminary as a student and then how you returned to be a faculty member? I, I came as a, a student um, because I had a powerful, what you might call evangelical conversion. Um, I was fellowshipping when I was 22 years old, just having graduated from um, college, university. I was having fellowship with a retired free Methodist minister okay. who was 69 years old at the time, and I was 22. And he had me read John Wesley's uh, 52 Standard Sermons. And when I read those sermons, I saw a whole new world that I never saw before. I mean, I had grown up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. I even won the re religion award uh, in school. Uh, but I never quite understood the gospel the way Wesley presented it in these sermons, because mm -hmm. what I saw there uh, was not only the beauty of the gospel, uh, but also the freedom, the, the enormous freedom that we enjoy by God's grace uh, because of what Jesus Christ has uh, done on our behalf. Yes. Yeah. So then, 
So the, that was your catalyst to coming yes. to the Yes, and then everything else is gray. You know, okay. Jesus is color, ministry is multicolored, everything else is gray. I was actually working for the federal government. I um, took a civil service exam. I was, after college, I was working in Social Security, actually. Um, <laughs> and I remember I told my boss that I was leaving. I was going off to seminary, and he said to me, you're, you're leaving a good job with a good career and a good future. But everything else was gray, and ministry and seminary was multicolored. And so wow. people know about that who, who have calls. You yeah. cannot do otherwise. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's incredible. So then you were here as a student. Yes. You mentioned you went on for some other degrees after that. How did you come back to Asbury Seminary as a professor? Yeah, I was uh, a professor of philosophy and religion at um, a small United Methodist College uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which was called Methodist College. Now it's Methodist University. And I was there uh, for 11 years, and I had been publishing, uh -huh. especially in the area of Wesley studies, uh -huh. so I was known. Uh -huh. And then I realized there was an opening at Asbury Seminary, um, and so I decided I would apply, mm -hmm. not thinking that I would actually get the position because the competition was very, very tough. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I had a close friend who said, oh, you're not going to make it. Uh, <laughs> one of these other two is going to get yeah. the position ahead of you. And uh, I, I was accepted, and I've been here ever since and enjoy my ministry here. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. Uh, Asbury is my home. Those are, that is high praise mm -hmm. to have a place that you work also feel like home as Oh, well. yeah. This this is my home. This is my home. Wow. Yes, it is. That's awesome. Well, we're glad to yes. have you in our home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, glad to be here. Glad yes. to be here for, okay. for a family conversation. Yes, yes. Why John Wesley? Was it because... Was it because the reading his sermons were was so transformative to you? Like, why has that been a longstanding interest for you? Yes, it, it is because the sermons were so transformative uh, for me because in the wake of reading them, mm -hmm. uh, I finally entered in and became, you know, the language I use today, I became a real Christian, a real, true, proper, scriptural wow. Christian. So John Wesley... Would you say he was the catalyst to you having your own strangely warm, heart strangely warmed experience? <laughs> well, uh, yes, in a real sense. What John Wesley did, he introduced Jesus Christ to me in a way that I had not been introduced to Jesus Christ before. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was transformative, and I will always uh, appreciate John Wesley for that. See, what Wesley's genius is that he brings forward what is in the New Testament. He brings it forward so that we don't miss anything or hardly anything. And I was, you know, uh, involved in, in another tradition where we missed too much. Oh, and okay. Wesley would make sure, ah, uh, there's this here. There's this freedom here. There's this here. There's this about Jesus here. And just filled with riches. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we've established, you are known for being a scholar of John Wesley. So why a book? on Jesus the Stranger. Yes, and Heidi, I was actually 
uh, setting up to do one last book on John Wesley, uh, which, by the way, I'm working on now. Okay. When, <laughs> do you have a date when that will be releasing? Uh, you're just in the beginning. Oh, I'm just in the very early stages of it, but uh, it's really coming from my perspective, uh, you know, having studied and worked with John Wesley through decades now, and, and it's going to be very reader-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um talk about uh, Wesley in a new way. But I was all set to do that, Mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit laid upon my heart a burden. Um, You're not supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be doing something else. And I saw how Jesus was presented out there in our North American culture, and I didn't recognize that Jesus. That's Mm -hmm. not the Jesus I know. Mm -hmm. And I know a very uh, beautiful Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I had a sense of calling. Mm -hmm. We were talking about vocation before. I had a sense of calling by the Holy Spirit why don't you write this book that you've been thinking about for a long time that will show people both inside and outside the church who Jesus is, especially in terms of his beauty? Why don't mm-hmm. you write that book? Yeah. And so I said yes. Wow, you could do nothing else, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh. So how did, the idea, how did this idea for the book come to you? Well, I had been thinking about this actually for quite some time, um, and I wanted to bring some of my skills as a writer to bear. I wanted to be more reader-friendly. I didn't want it to be uh, a quote-unquote academic book, though I wanted to do my homework, and I did because Uh the book has 82 notes, Um, (laughs) but I wanted it to be reader-friendly, and so what I came up with is a narrative journey. It's a narrative journey. Mm -hmm. It's a thematic presentation uh, of Jesus Christ focused on his interrelationships with key people, especially oppositional characters Mm -hmm. uh, who were giving Jesus a tough time. (laughs) uh, And then Jesus, his personhood, his personality being revealed in those interchanges. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. One of the things... I especially enjoyed as I read your book, um, which I really enjoyed, by the way, is being able to see the humanity of Jesus in a way that I hadn't realized before because I would read it as a story and know the ending but never take time to think about the suffering on the different, on the many different levels that Jesus experienced and to think about the people who were giving him a hard time and seeing myself in some of those people, you know, unintentionally. And I just found it very powerful, Dr. Collins. So I'm Mm -hmm. really grateful Mm -hmm. for your work. One of the things that you mentioned, I believe in the introduction to the book, was that you, you talked about the themes, but you said that you were going to be our guide throughout the book because you had been on this journey before, so you were going to guide us through it. What have you learned about Jesus as you wrote the book Um, or as like before that you kind of wanted to get across through the book? Yes, um, and I think we begin with the suffering of Jesus. Uh, And most people understand the physical suffering of Jesus, especially, you know, in light of that earlier movie, The Passion of Christ, which uh, I think on some level belongs in the genre of a horror movie. I saw it one time. I I would never watch it again. Mm -hmm. I, I found it deeply disturbing. 
Um, but when people think about the suffering of Jesus, they are thinking largely of the physical suffering. And I wanted to portray the emotional, the psychological, mm-hmm. the personal, the social suffering of Jesus Christ uh, as he is encountering various groups throughout his ministry, you know, from hometown folk, even to his own relatives, to religious leaders, even to his own disciple, Peter, who misunderstands mm-hmm. Jesus mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a very important way. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, what is the importance of story and the role in the imagination as we look at the life of Jesus? Yes, I mean, lots of people today, when they approach a book, they're, uh, they're at the center and they're reading a book as an object and they're going to acquire facts. And they're hardly going to be moved at all. In other words, it's sort of like a cognitive exercise. They're reading a book, they're going to acquire some facts, and they're never really caught up in the book. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book that you wouldn't be able to do that. (laughs) Uh, and, And it would be very hard to do that the way the book is arranged, the way the book is written, because it is a journey. It's a narrative journey. It's participatory. It engages the reader. Mm-hmm. And, and ask the reader to see themselves in this larger narrative that's playing out and then to see the relevance of it for their own life mm-hmm. uh, as they are confronting suffering in their own lives mm-hmm. and they want to uh, remain faithful. They want to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ in the face of a toxic culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why You call it Jesus the Stranger. Yes. Why is Jesus a stranger? He's a stranger because for so many people in the pages of the Gospels, Jesus is the other. He's not one of us. He's not an insider. Mm-hmm. He's not someone we accept in our circle of affection and care. Mm-hmm. He's the outsider and therefore uh, easily criticized, easily rebuked or slandered. We see that especially in terms of the religious leaders, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how they're treating uh, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's even this incident in terms of his own family where they think he's insane because he's so zealous and passionate uh, for the Father and for the glory of the Father that he's neglecting even maintenance needs like eating. Mm -hmm. But that's Jesus. That's Jesus in his zeal, in his energy, in his passion because of his love of the Father. How do you hope your book helps readers get to know Jesus as he truly is in the toxic culture that we that we live in. Yeah, I think um, would be from reading the book mm-hmm. and going through the journey themselves and seeing how what happens to Jesus uh, and, and what's revealed in the narrative as he remains faithful to the Father uh, as a true human being. Mm-hmm. You know, my father and your father, my God and your God. Jesus is a true human being remaining faithful in the midst of all the kinds of suffering that is thrown his way. What emerges from this 
is the goodness of Christ, we start to get a glimpse of that, the sheer goodness. Mm -hmm. And goodness is hard to portray, uh, especially in story, in narrative, in literature. But the goodness of Christ starts to come across, but also the beauty of Christ, the radiant beauty of Christ uh, who remains faithful despite the suffering. And so on one level, of course, the book is about Jesus because it chronicles this narrative. But on another level, it's about us. It's about people like you and I who want to remain faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, and we are suffering today. Yes. We're being called all sorts of names by all sorts of people. Uh, we are in a toxic culture. We are being persecuted, uh -huh. and yet we are called to faithfulness, uh -huh. uh, to persevere. And as a consequence of that, what will emerge is our goodness, the goodness of God in us, the Holy Spirit in us. That goodness will be seen by others, and we get to participate in Christ's beauty as he was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's lovely. One of the themes that you mentioned in this book is how seeing and really understanding God's love is absolutely transformative. How did you first really understand God's love, and how did that transform you? Well, I first understood God's love when I was 22 okay. years old. <laughs> you know, that's taken me back right. to my, my conversion, okay. which we were talking about earlier. But uh, you're right, Heidi, um, that I have seen the love of God in a new way, uh, in a rich way. And I don't know what this is going to do to my Wesleyan Arminian theology. I'm still thinking this through. But, but here's what I want to communicate, and here's what I want to share. And I did talk a little bit about this in the introduction to the book that I saw in a flash the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ for Ken Collins, uh, you know, fill in the blanks with our names here, at Golgotha. Mm -hmm. In other words, as Jesus is in the midst of this very, very dark place. Um, and I saw that so clearly, so powerfully, mm -hmm. that in seeing that, it has been transformative. Mm -hmm. And so the part that I'm struggling with in my theology as a Wesley Arminian, I, I, I almost think if you see that love of God manifested in Jesus Christ for you, fill in your name, Heidi or mm -hmm. John or Sarah, whomever, it, it's almost necessarily transformative. You cannot help but be transformed by that. Now, I suppose my Wesley Arminian theology is coming in, it's kicking in and saying, okay, yeah, and then you can reject that, or you can stifle it, ignore it, et cetera, et cetera, but it is so powerful. It is right. so powerful. There, there really is a before and after yeah. here. Because when you truly understand how much Jesus does love you, right. can you do anything except return that love? Right. Because yeah. it's so yes. great. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Another one of the things, as we're talking about discipleship, of learning to be disciples of Jesus in today's culture, really any, any, any time, but we're living now, so it's our culture. One of the things that really struck me from your book and kind of it made me think a lot was you were talking about those who came to arrest and crucify Jesus. They were the religious leaders, as we all know, but 
they could very likely have thought that they were doing the right thing, which really disturbed me because I was like, how often do I, and I may be misrepresenting what you were saying. Um, so no, I, I think I think you've got it right. I think so you've got it right. So it made me really disturbed to think, are there times when I think for sure I'm doing the right thing and I'm actually not, you know? And then, so my question is, if that can, since that can happen, how can we learn to recognize the truth and then follow that truth? Because that's what I want, Dr. Collins. Yes. I don't want to be yes. doing this other thing. I think you actually you're being very perceptive. You're not misreading anything. You're, you're reading what is actually in the gospel narrative itself and what I'm picking up uh, in, in the book, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus the Stranger, that the religious leaders in persecuting Jesus and seeing him executed, uh, believe they are doing the very will of God. Mm-hmm. They believe they're the heroes of the story, that they're the good people. Mm-hmm. Now, you're dropping back and saying, whoa, uh, how do I know if I am like that today? In mm-hmm. other words, so deceived, and they are deceived. Mm -hmm. They are deceived. So this comes, you know, the whole element of self-deception. And the way we can know that we are, in fact, in the will of God and, and doing good is to consider, get back to very basic questions now very basic questions, like the young religious um, leader who had the conversation with Jesus in chapter 13 on what is the greatest commandment, okay? Uh, That's actually a very important chapter, and it's placed exactly where it needs to be in the book because it's sort of dropping back and saying, hey, hey, what's this all about? And what is it all about? It's about the, the universal love of God, in other words, loving God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, mm-hmm. and loving our neighbor as ourself. And that's universal. Mm-hmm. And I've argued that even from Old Testament materials, that even Old Testament materials argue the universal love of God. In other words, not simply Jews, but also the foreigner, the other, mm-hmm. okay? And where the religious leaders had gone wrong, they were not in the universal <laughs> love of God and the, and the universal love of neighbor. They were in a tribe. They were in a tribe. They had set up themselves uh, and their interest and their particular provincial desires as the center. And in that world, odd as this may seem, Jesus is now the other. And rightly in their thinking, the religious leaders thinking, rightly persecuted because he challenges our good. Mm -hmm. He challenges who we are. Well, absolutely. So, how does knowing the true Jesus help us see the truth about ourselves? To Because I think it's very easy, especially today, to fall into tribes, church, political, friend groups, on social media. How does knowing the truth about Jesus help us see the truth about ourselves 
so that we can then be in right relationship with God and neighbor. That's right. And look at Jesus on the cross. Mm -hmm. He's having dialogue with common criminals, and he's making a promise to one of them, which he keeps, mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so there you have the highest in other words, Jesus, the Logos made flesh, the very highest, God mm -hmm. come to us, Emmanuel, at the lowest depths uh, of human existence, what some people would call the scum of the earth. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is covering the whole gamut, the whole expanse. There's the richness, the generosity, the universality of the love of God. There's the gospel. There's the good news of mm -hmm. the gospel, mm -hmm. okay? And so we need to rub our noses in that because we run the same risk as the religious leaders of setting up our own Christian faith as just just another tribe. Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. So we don't want to do that. No. No, we don't, no, want, to we do don't want to do that. We want to love our enemies as Jesus taught us. Yeah. What does that what does that look like? Because I I feel like today we're more polarized than it feels like we've ever been. Obviously I haven't lived for the entire history of the world, but it, it's very like opposite right now. How do we, what does loving our, I mean, I know what loving our neighbor looks like, but what does it look like on a heart level as we seek to, to do this? I think we have to demonstrate the love of God and neighbor. In other words, be very positive. There's a lot of negativity out there, even in terms of the church. We need to focus on Jesus Christ, who is positive, and continually speak into that. Mm -hmm. The goodness of the gospel, the richness of the love of God, it is attractive. It will draw people to uh, uh, to Christ if, if we do that. So mm -hmm. I would argue for a very positive approach presenting the goodness of Jesus and the gospel mm -hmm. uh, and show, be the light. Jesus called us light. Jesus called us the salt of the earth to be that light, to be mm -hmm. that salt. Mm -hmm. And that will be attractive in a world where people are suffering, they're, they're hungry, they're alone, they're alienated, and they are looking for the rich love mm -hmm. of God and a community which celebrates that, the church. I'm glad you mentioned light because that was something that I wanted to ask you about too. Your subtitle for the book is The Man from Galilee and Light of the World. Why did you pick that, that wording? Yes, that's, again, Heidi, you're very perceptive. Uh, <laughs> there's actually a lot going on mm -hmm. in terms of the subtitle. Uh, the man from Galilee, uh, he's not even from Judea. And, and he's a man, he's a Jew, a mm -hmm. young Jew, uh, a common laborer, perhaps a carpenter. What's so special about him? Right. Why, why should I pay attention mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. Jesus of Nazareth? Why? And what the book reveals, Jesus the Stranger, over the course of the 42 chapters, is that this man from Galilee is the light of the world. Mm -hmm. And it reveals why he is the light of the world. That's what the whole journey, the whole narrative journey is all about. Mm -hmm. You come to understand that at the end, why this man, and no other, by the way, mm -hmm. is the light of the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As you see the suffering that we've already mentioned, but it's a call for us as disciples of Christ to also 
be willing to endure suffering as we follow him. So what would you say is the role of suffering today for serious Christian discipleship in today's world? Yeah, um, we need to understand suffering on a number of levels. And sometimes Christians can be naive here, okay? Uh, There are different levels of suffering. There's, first of all, the suffering of the human condition. Okay, Okay? Uh, And being a Christian does not exempt us from the human condition. We get sick, we age, uh, bad things happen to good people, so to speak. Loved ones that that we cherish die. Uh, People that we love are harmed. Uh, This is part of the human condition. This is part of life. But God is with us in all of this. Uh, But then there's a second level of suffering, and that has to do with... Uh, being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, um, that Jesus warned us about this. They, mm-hmm. he, Jesus told us, they hate me, they'll hate you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we have to understand that, uh, that just as Jesus was persecuted, as the light of the world was persecuted, we, as we're in the light, we will be persecuted as well. And this calls for maturity. This calls for a kind of Christian maturity that we don't need God to come in and take all the suffering away. That's it. That's an immature response. Right. Even I mean, we t- wish it would happen. What's that? We wish it we, could. We happen. wish it would happen, but you know, we have to be more mature and to understand that that suffering is going to be a part of our journey. Uh, and that it's okay, we're, we're going to make it, and, and it'll be fine, um, and that we will be revealed as good and beautiful people if we trust in God and persevere uh-huh. and, and continue to receive God's grace. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think this book on some level is a call to Christian maturity, um, you know, some people, and I'm thinking also outside the church now, when suffering comes their way, uh, they're not facing forthrightly the human condition. And so what do they do? You know, they, they try to get a fix somehow or other to fix it. They'll run off into uh, maybe drugs or alcohol, or they'll run, in, run off into a tribe mm-hmm. and enjoy all the social comforts of a tribe, mm-hmm. but in a sense despise the other. Or they'll go off into aberrant sexuality, mm-hmm. all because they can't face the basic suffering of the human condition. And so they try to find these fixes. And in a sense, they're living uh, a false life. They're living a deception. Yeah. They're not mm-hmm. They're not coming to terms with their own life, with the suffering that's a part mm-hmm. of it. And instead, they're trying to escape it. And they've, they've come up with all these different escapes, the world, the flesh, the devil, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And that can be manifested in so many ways. And it's to, to live not in an honest way, mm-hmm. not in a way that recognizes that suffering is going to be a part of our journey, but it will be okay. And, and great things, really great things, uh, will come through this process of right. remaining faithful and right. enduring over time. But that's not to minimize the pain of the suffering when you're saying it's going to be okay. You know, right. Because you have to journey through that. That's right. That's right. right. That's right. Right. Yes. Do you think it's possible, because I feel like in some ways we're all in a tribe, whether we realize it or not, how do we avoid or at least recognize that we are so that— I think that's the first step. Okay. I think the first step is to recognize 
that people can be in their Christian meanings like people are in their sports affiliations. Yes. It can be that crude at times. Mm-hmm. And, and even a kind of interdenominational rivalry or inter-Christian, you know, let's say yes. Roman Catholic, Protestant, or yes. Eastern Orthodox, uh, which is the, the exact opposite of the gospel if those divisions are just held so sharply in place that I, I think every Christian would want an ecumenical heart that we want to be in harmony and communion with our fellow brothers and sisters who are in different Christian traditions. Um, I think that's incredibly important because it's at the heart of what the gospel is. And what does the world think of us? When we as Christians, let's say Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholic, can't even worship the Lord at the same table. You know, what does that say to the world, especially in knowing now what the gospel is, Mm -hmm. the universal love of God and the universal love of neighbor that breaks down these walls, Mm -hmm. that breaks down the tribes uh, and celebrates uh, the goodness of God in the midst of that. Yes, yes, for sure. How do we, you mentioned the other and maybe avoiding thinking of people as other. But we're not all the same, you know, there's differences between us. So how do we, how should we think of our neighbor, neighbors who are different than, than we are? Right. And I think one way is to love them as we love ourselves. And how do we love them? We wish for our neighbor, however our neighbor is defined, the very same good that we will for ourselves. What is that same good we will for ourselves? to know, to love, and to enjoy God, the goodness that is God now and forevermore. Uh, To have that kind of uh, loving attitude towards every person we meet, that we will for them the very same thing that we will for ourselves. That's powerful. I think that's transformative if if we started to do that. Yes. Well, we have to start talking about it. We have, we to, have start- to start talking about it in the church. We have to get out of our tribal ways, off in the corner somewhere, and, and really take the gospel seriously as the universal love of God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Dr. Collins, absolutely. So, of course, we want readers to purchase your book if they haven't already, and they can do that. We'll link to the places they can do that in our show notes. But as they read this book, how would you suggest that they read it? I suggest they read it with an open mind uh, and to maybe take on the image that it's like going on a multi-day hike, uh, a multi-day hike in, a, let's say, a, a, an interesting terrain. Uh, and to have that sort of uh, engaging, attractive, even alluring understanding in the beginning that they're going on a journey and therefore to be open uh, to the possibilities of insight and change along the way. Mm, yeah. 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 Because it definitely changed me and how I think about things. I mentioned that earlier. So like seeing Jesus suffering on many levels and just seeing the story of Jesus in a new way that I hadn't experienced before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was what I kind of took away from your book. What What is your hope as an author for readers to to learn or gain as they read your book? My hope is that people like you and others, I've had people contact me, write to me, uh, and they've told me it's really changed their lives Mm -hmm. in in so many different ways, 
that if this group can be, this book could be brought into the churches and that there could be Bible studies around it, small group studies, uh, and whole groups of people can talk about the beauty of Christ and in doing so be a light, uh, an attractive light that others both inside and outside the church will see. I mean, that, that would be wonderful. Yeah. 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 I think it definitely, definitely can do that. So, Dr. Collins, we've talked about a great many things today, mm-hmm. um, but I by no means think we've talked about all of them. So, is there anything else you'd like to mention that I haven't already that we haven't already talked about? One last thing I'd like to say, and this is in line with your last question mm-hmm. in terms of the reader yes. and how should they read the book. Uh, the book has been carefully structured. Uh, and so chapters are placed where they should be. Um, there are clues along the way. There is a structure to be discerned there, and that structure is important. So that, I think, will create a sense of curiosity and excitement for, for the reader as mm-hmm. well. We've already talked about chapter 13. Um, there's uh, a narrative pause or break in terms of the three chapters on discipleship. But I think it would be interesting for readers to think um, what chapter is the climax of the book. And they may differ on that, actually. Mm -hmm. What chapter is actually the climax? And that will reveal, in a certain way, how they understand Jesus and the gospel story, where they see the climax of the book. Um, Then I should also mention that because this is a very engaging, participatory kind of book, Mm -hmm. I offered readers an opportunity at the end. There is a litany of confession, repentance, and renewal, which, by the way, is a summary of the entire book. And it's a litany that goes in accordance with four key repeated verses, not three. And that okay. that has something significant as well, and readers will think that through and uh, see what's going on <laughs> here. But there is a litany of confession, repentance, and renewal at the end for those people who have been moved. I mean, there was an Asbury professor who said this so moved him, he had to step away from it for a while yeah. and then come back to it because he was so moved by it. Uh, but I wanted to offer uh, a, an avenue uh, for that, uh, you know, an outlet for those who have been so moved and perhaps would like to praise Christ yeah. and express gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy yeah. Spirit. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to end this book. So I have one last question that okay. we ask everyone who comes on the show. Because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? The one practice that is means so much to me right now is running <laughs> while I pray. Really? I do running and praying at the same time. Uh, the other day I ran almost seven and a half miles and my prayers were simply beautiful. They were rich, they were thick, they were deep. Uh, I celebrate and worship and adore God as I run. Mm-hmm. I, I have a very holistic understanding of a human being for those who know me. Uh, the physical, 
the intellectual, the spiritual, the emotional, all of it, all of it makes us up as persons. And so when I am glorifying God, I want everything engaged. Mm -hmm. And when I run and pray, that's exactly what happens. Wow, I think I love that because I run too. I'm not the runner that you are. I how do you focus? Because I have a hard time focusing on other th- anything else. Oh, I find running. that after mile three and a half, a whole <laughs> new kind of praying and thinking okay. kicks in. You my, get that runner's high. Well, yeah, my normal cogitating mind it just falls away. Uh-huh. It's gone, mm-hmm. and and holistic, seeing big picture kind of thinking. Yeah insights, um, seeing things that I couldn't see before, uh, that God's trying to communicate Mm -hmm. to me, perhaps areas where I need to change. (laughs) I see that uh, also in the context of running. So it's a very, very positive experience for me. Yes. One of my favorite things to do. I love that. Do you feel like you engage best with God when you're also incorporating movement of some kind? I do like, as I said earlier, all the physical, the spiritual, the intellectual, the emotional, Mm -hmm. all together, Mm -hmm. all together, because I'm a person. I'm not a disembodied soul. I am an embodied soul who has a spirit, uh, uh, and I want to worship God as a person. Right, as a whole being. Right. I really like that, because I have a hard time sitting still sometimes, and so I like hearing about engaging, adding movement to engaging with God. I'm like, that is beautiful. And I'm going to go running this afternoon, too. It's a great day for it. It's a a good day. It really is. There'll be few good days, so I'm going to take advantage of it today. (laughs) I heard someone say once, I don't know if I agree with it entirely, but they said there is no such thing as bad weather. You just don't have the right clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, there is such a thing as bad weather. (laughs) In Kentucky, I can get behind that on most days, except if it's excessively windy, I don't want to go out and like do a ton run or anything. Or if it's raining, I draw yeah. the line on the. How rain. about cold, windy, and rainy and dark? Yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> there, there it is. <laughs> I don't do there that. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Collins, thank you so much for taking yes, time. Yes, thank you. I I've enjoyed this so much, Heidi. Thank you so much. I have as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. God bless you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Collins. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and that you will take the time to get and read a copy of his new book. It helped me see Jesus in a new and different and yes, transformative way and I hope that it does the same for you. And also, I'm just so grateful for Dr. Collins taking the time to come by today and for the work that he has given us through his book and his teaching and more books to come. As always, you can follow Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.